This morning uh, marks the end of our series we've been doing on the Holy Spirit, the He Who Gives Life. And admittedly, uh, the last couple of weeks have probably felt a little bit like an intramural debate in-house with Christianity. Um, but I, I trust even though that's been the case, it's been at least encouraging, if not, uh, uh, if not uh, informative for you. And I trust this morning as we talk about this phenomena of tongues, uh, that it will be the same. Uh, if you have a Bible, open up to Acts chapter 1. We'll read a couple verses from, a few verses from that first chapter to kind of set our trajectory. If you need a Bible, you'll have one, use the Pew Bible that's in front of you. Uh, the book of Acts is like fifth book in the New Testament. Just open up in the middle and you'll find Acts right after uh, the Gospel of John. Uh, so next week we will jump into a, a, a series that I trust is more applicable, at least more easily applicable to everyone, because it's a series about emotions. That's something that all of us deal with in one way, shape, or form or another. In particular, I'm going to look at uh, some of the darker emotions like anger, anxiety, and escapism. Now, I know technically escapism is not an emotion, but since that's such a huge cultural issue in our time, it'd be, we'd be remiss not to see what does Scripture say about that. So we'll spend five weeks talking about emotions. How do we redeem our emotions? What does the Bible say about emotions? And I think if, if you're looking for someone to, uh, a series to invite someone to, I think that would be a good one. So if you've been kind of holding off because you know that we're talking about the Holy Spirit's kind of like talking about your crazy uncle, and so maybe you don't want to invite someone to it, so next week will be a safer bet to invite someone to a series uh, uh, here at Christ Community Church. After that, we'll jump back into the book of Romans and tackle chapters 5 through 8 in the fall. So it, it's, it, we've got some good stuff coming up, and I trust that you will be encouraged with it. Now, as I teach about tongues this morning, the structure of this sermon is probably going to mimic kind of your Christian life. What I mean by that, there's going to be one part, the first part, I trust you'll be like, oh, I get it. That makes sense. Thank you very much. I understand. Moving on. The other part, you'll be like, what the heck is God doing here? I don't understand this, right? That's kind of how our Christian lives go. And then at the end, so there's three parts of the sermon. The part that I hope makes sense. The other part that may be a little bit like, well, that, God is mysterious. I, I wish he was more rational like me. And then we'll conclude by saying, what do we make of this? So, so that's kind of the structure of our sermon this morning. Now, if you're visiting with us, uh, if, if you're new to Christ Community Church, or you don't, don't come from necessarily a Christian background, I guess I want to say I'm sorry. This might be tough sledding this morning. Uh, give us another chance. Come back next week as we start a series on emotions. Or if somebody brought you, ask them, what was that guy talking about? And hopefully they'll be explaining a little bit things to you. I'm just recognizing that sometimes in a church we talk about things and you're like, what is that? You know. Um, so, so is it just me or is that true? Uh, not so confident there. Anyway. We will be looking at the book of Acts uh, primarily as an overview and 1 Corinthians chapter 14 because these are the two sections of scripture that primarily the phenomena of tongues reveals itself. In order to do this well in the limited time that I have, we're going to kind of go at a high level and then we're going to zoom in, zoom back out, cover a lot of material. So I guess what I'm saying is that Buckle up, because this is not going to be your grandmother's typical Sunday morning sermon, all right? So with that, let's jump right into it. Point number one, the redemptive historical use of tongues in Acts. Wow, okay. So let me explain to you, the book of Acts is many things, but primarily the book of Acts is a theological history of how Judaism becomes Christianity. Now, in other words, the book of Acts is recording the historical, theological, sociological transition of how Judaism, with all of its confines of nationality, ethnicity, and language, 
uh, which is the old, old Covenant, the Old Testament people of God, Israel, the Jews, becomes this multiracial, multiethnic, multilinguistic reality known as the people of God in the New Testament, the church. Right now, for most of, well, all of us here, you've probably never really thought of that because you are in this new reality of the church. But if you've ever been a Christian, you've kind of thought about, how did this Jewish thing, which is very structured, and if you have Jewish friends today, it's very wrapped up in Jewishness, linguistically, culturally, ethnically, nationally. How does that become this thing called Christianity? Well, that's what the book of Acts is about recording, that massive transition and all that goes along with it. With Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all the hopes of Judaism, right? Uh, the, the covenant promises of God given to Abraham all the way back in, in Genesis chapter 12 find fuller and greater fulfillment in the new covenant people of God today. And so there's a lot of, lot of connection, but a lot of changes. And it's not about being Jewish or being an ethnicity or speaking a certain language or having a national identity. It is open to all who by faith, just like Abraham, trusted in the gospel. Now, you might think, wait, wait a minute, the gospel didn't exist to the New Testament. Well, no, that's not correct. Gospel simply means the saving acts of God in history. That's what it is. That's the good news. And as Abraham trusted in the saving acts of God, we do the same. You just see, he looked forward to the saving acts of God on, on kind of credit. We look back to the saving acts of God on debit. We're looking back at the cross, whereas he looked forward to the cross. The point is, this word I have on the screens, redemptive historical, is what theologians and scholars use to describe. They also use the phrase salvation history. They use this to describe the plan of God un, uh, revealed through the ages, through history, of his redemption of humanity and the restoration of all things. The story of the Bible is not some random story slapped together. You've heard me say oftentimes, there's one story. There's a lot of stories in that story, but there's one overarching story, and that's what we call salvation history or redemptive history, how God is working through the ages in our history, as well as our own individual lives, but in our history to bring about redemption and the restoration of reality. It's pretty amazing in that way. The phenomena of tongues, interestingly enough, acts as a marker throughout the entirety of the book of Acts. In other words, whenever we see this pivotal transition, how Judaism is giving way to Christianity, tongues is present. I'll explain why in a little bit. But first, let's stand together and read the opening lines of the book of Acts. So would you stand as we read God's word? Acts chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11. Let me get there. So Luke writes this. In the first book, O Theophilus, so what's that talking about? So in case you didn't know, Luke is the author of both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. And in early church history, these books went together. They got circulated together. But when we put the canon together, we thought, well, let's put Luke's gospel with the other gospels and then keep Acts after the gospels because it's talking about the, the, the birth of the church and so on. So, so what Luke is referring to here is his gospel. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. 
And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. That's a very important verse, by the way, for the book of Acts. Verse 9, And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. I often say an advantage that new Christians have that sometimes uh, more veteran Christians don't have is a lot of what they read in the Bible is brand new, right? And, and, and sometimes I want to encourage you, if you've been a Christian longer than a couple of years, keep reading the Bible as they would have experienced it. Can you imagine what this was like for these early disciples? I mean, you know the story by and large. You know the contours of the story. Each gospel ends the same, ends on a high note for sure, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But it also ends with Jesus' death and his crucifixion and the tragedy and the despair that filled them with. And it is quite a roller coaster ride, to say the least, of what these disciples experienced. But here we have the book of Acts beginning. Can you imagine what these young, zealous disciples were thinking? I know what I would be thinking. Yes, yes, this is it. He conquered death. Now we move out. Let's go. Jesus, you even hear it in their words. Is this the time when you restore the kingdom to Israel? That is Old Testament theological shorthand for all the promises. None of the Messiah's here. We're no longer going to be oppressed. We're no longer going to be forgotten and trodden underfoot. You're going to establish us, and you're going to make it all great. Is this that time? What does Jesus say? Hold on, fellas. You got work to do. You need to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. That verse, really in some ways, is setting the trajectory of what we're studying this morning. Let's look at the first one where Jesus says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. We see here in Acts chapter 2, this event called Pentecost. This takes place in Jerusalem. Now, I don't have the time to get into the full theological depth of this event. But about two years ago, we were doing a series on the person of Christ. I preached on Pentecost and its kind of new covenant significance and I'm actually kind of hoping that many of you either remember that or will somehow go and listen to that sermon. Because in that sermon, we spend the entirety unpacking what is taking place at Pentecost. What Luke is showing here, so I'm just going to kind of, I'm not going to go back into that. Hopefully you will look, listen to it or watch it again. But for our argument's sake, Luke is showing the progression of how Judaism becomes Christianity. And one of the ways he does this is by showing how the Holy Spirit, who is, by the way, the promised evidence of the new covenant, is spreading out in concentric circles encompassing all of humanity. Now, in the Old Testament, many of the prophets, even Moses, if you see in, Number, in Numbers chapter 11, many of the prophets are talking about a day 
when there's going to be a new covenant, a new testament, and the sign of that's going to be the very Spirit of God being poured out on the people of God. In the Old Testament, it was functioned much more tribally. The Spirit of God was reserved for the prophet, the priest, and the king, and occasionally some other people, but that was it by and large. But they hoped for a day that the Holy Spirit, they didn't call him the Holy Spirit, they called him the Spirit of God, would be poured out and the people of God, every one of us would receive it. We know that's the interpretation because in Acts chapter 2 verses 16, when we see Pentecost happening and they're all speaking in tongues, Peter says, guys, we are not drunk, right? So, so some people cynical were thinking that they were drunk. Others were recognizing what in the heck's going on. We hear these Jews speaking in our languages the mighty acts of God. What in the world? And Peter says, this very thing is what Joel the prophet prophesied. Now, he didn't say in chapter 2, verse 28, but those came in later. But he says, this thing you're seeing, this is not a new thing. We're not drunk. This is the promise of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit has come. But the question is, why in this phenomena of speaking other languages? That seems so bizarre. Yeah, if you think of the Bible as a bunch of separate stories, but if you know the Bible is one continuous story, it makes a lot of sense. In Genesis 11, one of the judgments that God put upon humanity because of its pride, we see at the Tower of Babel. Many of you know that story. We're in our hubris and pride. Mankind said, hey, we're going to make a name for ourselves. We are all that in a bag of chips. Watch this tower we make reach to heaven. And God said, that's not how this is going to go. You need to realize your need of my grace. And yet, because even in your sin, you have this great ability as a gift from me, you are misusing it. So he confuses the languages, and no one can communicate anymore, and humanity is scattered. In the new covenant, God says, and that's not going to be how it is anymore. Humanity is not going to be scattered in the winds, hopeless and without help or care. The gospel, my son, has redeemed it all, and I'm bringing everyone back. And so at one time, you could not understand each other, and now you can understand each other. And so tongues is this symbolic effect that the, the judgment of Genesis 11 has been reversed, and now all of God's people are speaking languages. You see in Acts chapter 2 that they don't know, but they're speaking it out. And all these other people from the surrounding regions that know these languages saying, what in the world is happening? They're speaking our language. These are Jews. And what they're saying is declaring the mighty acts of God, those acts being Christ has come, the new covenant is here, hope for salvation in humanity, reconciliation with God is now possible. We are all one in Christ. So tongues, this bizarre phenomena, is not just some spiritual showmanship. In redemptive history, God is saying, I'm reversing judgments here. And what once separated you in Christ brings us all back. Now, that doesn't mean we all have this superpower to speak different languages. That's not what's going on. It's simply a symbolic act of what's happening here at Pentecost. An inauguration is taking place. The new covenant is here. Now, the next step in this redemptive historical transition we see is in Acts chapter 8. Now, in Acts chapter 8, what's going on is, so after Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, all the way up through chapter 7, there's like explosive growth of the church. It's insane. Thousands of people are coming to Christ. And, and what happens is, we get introduced by a young, to a young man named Saul of Tarsus. You may know him as Paul the Apostle, but this is before that. And he hates Christians, and he's having them executed. Stephen's executed. Paul is there overseeing the execution. Persecution breaks out, and the church scatters. A man named Philip goes down to Samaria preaching the gospel, and people are believing the gospel message, and a church is formed there. 
Now, in Acts chapter 8, verse 4 to 25, the phenomena of tongues is not explicitly stated in the text. I'll just be clear with you if you actually read it. But every scholar and theologian attests to the fact that must have happened because at verse 18, 17 and 18, when it says the disciples prayed and the Holy Spirit fell, something happened that made Simon the magician say, wow, can I buy that? How are you making these people do this? And he offers to buy the Holy Spirit, and then he gets rebuked by Peter. We talked a little bit about this last week. The question that this text in Acts 8 poses for us is if these believers in Samaria had accepted the gospel message, why does the Holy Spirit wait to come upon them like he did on all the believers at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? Why does he have to wait till Peter and John show up, pray for them, and lay hands on them before he kind of falls upon them and they're speaking in tongues, right? By the way, if you have a Catholic background, this may be familiar to you because the Catholic Church says this proves apostolic ascension, therefore the Catholic Church is the church. If you have a charismatic background like I do, you have been taught that this proves you can have Christians, but then you got spirit-filled Christians right here. It's It's a separate experience. The problem with both of those is they're not taking into account the whole book of Acts and what the author intends to show this redemptive historical transition. If you understand it that way, what's happening here makes a lot more sense in the entirety of the book. Now, you might be able to sell uh, apostolic ascension or you know, special second filling of the Holy Spirit if you just look at this one little text. But as a good student of any kind of literature, you don't do that. You have to see the text in its larger context. And it doesn't make sense when it's viewed that way, but it does make sense when you realize Luke is showing how Judaism transforms into Christianity, and here's another step in the path. Now, in order for you to get this, a little history is important. In ancient Israel, you may be aware that the kingdom was a united monarchy, right? So the entire book of 2 Samuel, 1 Kings chapters 1 to 12, the entirety of 1 Chronicles all the way up to chapter 10 of 2 Chronicles talks about the united kingdom of Israel. That was at their zenith. But unfortunately, the kingdom divided. And this we see in Scripture, 1 Kings 16, all the way up through 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles 10 through 36. The entire kingdom divided between north and south. The capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria. Now, some of you Bible students are like, no, it's not. It's Ephraim. You read the prophets, it's Ephraim. And some of you other Bible students say, it's not Ephraim. It's Israel. Well, you're all right. What's going on there? Just like for me, where I'm from, the islands of Hawaii, the state's Hawaii, but in our state, we have Hawaii, the island. But it's also the big island. No, it's not. It's Kona. Yes, it is. No, it's not. It's Hilo. Yes, it is. So we have four names for the same island, Hawaii, big island, Kona, Hilo, and it's all part of the state Hawaii. But none of you get confused. If you've ever been to Hawaii, you know what I'm talking about. Most of the locals call it Kona, Hilo, or something like that. My point simply is, people will often go to Scripture and say, see, there's a contradiction, don't have to believe the Bible. It's like, this happens in our lives all the time. Same thing happening here. Southern kingdom, capital was Jerusalem, northern was Samaria, sometimes called Ephraim, sometimes called Israel. My point is, that's where the division begins. And so you now have a divided Jewish kind of ethnicity or group. Things only get worse You guys know the theological history. Israel commits sin, so does Judah. But in 722, God raises up the Assyrians, smashes Israel, drags them all off to exile, right? Israel's gone. 
Now, in accordance with their foreign policy, Esher-Adon, the king of Assyria, we know this from Ezra 4, verse 3, he leaves some of the Jews in the land and then brings a whole bunch of other people, mixed population, and plops them in uh, basically Israel, Ephraim, Samaria. And what turns out from that, we learn from 2 Kings 17, you get kind of a, a bastardized, synchristic Judaism. So it's Jewish, but not really. And this comes to a height in like the books of Ezra when they're rebuilding the wall. Uh, the, the, the people from the north come down and say, hey, we're Jews, let's help you build the wall. And the Jerusalem people say, no, you're not, get out of here, right? And we see this come by the time of the New Testament, this division is entrenched. So much so, when Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman, she says this. The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, Ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. And then John reminds us, for those of us who may not know, because the Jews have no dealing with the Samaritans. It's not just because they're ethnically mixed or anything, but they have fundamentally different worship practices, which is highlighted later in that chapter. Our lady says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So this is what's going on in Samaria. Now, the reason Acts 8 is important, number one, is because, A, you're seeing here, Jesus in the Gospel of John had a rich ministry in Samaria that bore wonderful fruits. Matter of fact, let's read it. John chapter 4, many Samaritans, starting at verse 39, from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did, she said. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So Acts 8 in Samaria is significant because Jesus had a ministry in Samaria that bore fruit, and a lot of people believed in him. Secondly, it's important because did you remember in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Samaria is included in Jesus' announcement of the trajectory of redemptive history. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, same kind of concept there, and Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. And then third and finally, Samaria is important, Acts 8 is important, because we just read that Philip had a ministry here, and it was bearing fruit. So here, let me, let me pull these strands together. So, You have a flourishing Samaritan Christian community in a place with a flourishing Samaritan Jewish community that is totally fine being divided from Judaism. So in other words, what would prevent this Samaritan Christian community from making the same mistake as the Samaritan Jewish community? Since the Jews there were used to being separate from Judaism, would the Christians there be used to being separated from Christianity? And right at the beginning, you have a complete schism of what Christianity actually is. To prevent such a schism, there had to be something that would link the Samaritan believers with the Jerusalem believers. Something integrally that shows a fundamental unity of the gospel. Enter Peter and John from Jerusalem who bring with them the prophetic sign of the fulfillment of the new covenant, the Holy Spirit, and the baptism of the Holy Spirit falling upon these guys. So this isn't a passage of apostolic accession or charismatic second blessing. This is what Luke is showing. Look, there's a redemptive trajectory here, and God is showing the unity of the gospel, the unity of the people of God. 
that's not about kind of things like gender or economics or nationality or ethnicity. All those divisions are superfluous. There is a fundamental unity of the people of God. And Acts chapter 8 shows as the gospel spreading out, there is this strong unity of the people of God, as Jesus said, Jerusalem, Samaria, and then he says to the ends of the earth. And by the way, that's the next time we see act, uh, tongues in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 10 and 11. In keeping with that trajectory of Acts 1-8, here we are now hearing about the Gentiles of all people. Now, we all assume you all Gentiles here, right? You're all pretty much, we had a couple of Jewish people here that were believers, but now they've moved away. Everyone here is pretty much Gentile. We've just assumed this. But it was radical to think that the gospel would be available to Gentiles. As if to offer a commentary on what's going on here to help us interpret this passage, Luke includes this pivotal vision in Acts chapter 10, explaining God's redemptive historical plan. And friends, this is, keep in mind, they don't have the luxury of 2,000 years of, of, of reflection. They don't have the entirety of Scripture. They are figuring this out moment by moment as it's happening. The, the gist of it is, in Acts chapter 10, Peter receives a vision, you see that in verses 9 through 17, that completely stumps him. Completely stumped by the vision. The vision that Peter has as he's hanging out on this rooftop is of a sheet floating down from heaven. And as the four corners unfold in the sheet, are all kinds of animals, all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. Pig is even in there, right? And in verse 13, a voice says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter responds, says, Lord, no, 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 I'm a good Jew, and I abide by kosher laws. I don't eat unclean foods. And the scripture says, what God has made clean, do not call unclean or common. In other words, God was saying, the gospel's now available to everyone. Let me tell you what I mean by this in a way we might understand. When you date, man, when you ask a woman out, what's typically the first activity you ask her to do? Go have dinner, right? Why? Because dinner is a, is a, is a social thing. There's fellowship there. There's conversation. It's a bit intimate. You get to know people. You get to have that experience with one another. In the Old Testament, when God was saying, I need to create a separate people distinct from the world, set apart from me, he created all kinds of rules and regulations to do that. One of the best ways to keep people separate was to erect dietary prohibitions. Which is why a vegan girl will never marry a meat-loving man. Right? It's just not going to happen because you don't even have dinner. You don't even, have, you don't even get out of the gate with a date. What God is showing here is the barriers come down. Those dietary laws that kept you separate from the Gentiles, like you can't eat pork, get rid of those. And when my kids were young, every time I served bacon, teaching opportunity, I would say, what do we praise God for? And they would say, Acts chapter 10. Because there it is, we can eat bacon now. The point is, this is much more about than eating bacon, as awesome as that is. God was showing his redemptive plan is open to everybody. And nothing, there's going to be no more barriers that keep people separated. The linguistic barriers gotten rid of by the symbol of tongues. And now even the dietary barriers gotten rid of. If you have Jewish friends, you know they still live by those barriers. Because the Messiah, their hope has not come. But the gospel has come, the vision, right? Verse 17 kind of offers us the interpretation. We know that we're correct. Because in verse 17, at that moment, Peter receives messengers from a Roman centurion named Cornelius 
who's told by God to send for Peter and hear the gospel message that Peter has to bring. In Acts 11.15, as Peter's reporting to the Jerusalem church, recalling the events, he says, as I preached the gospel to them, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as he did upon us at Pentecost. What the heck's going on? We know. I mean, you might assume it. You already know. But those early Christians went, what in the world? You know what this means, guys. If the sign of the new covenant came upon them like it came upon us in Acts chapter 2, just because they responded to the preaching of the gospel, then that means they don't have to be Jewish. They don't have to abide by our civil laws, our ceremonial laws, our dietary laws. That just means faith in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, that's all that's required to be part of the new covenant people of God. What in the world? That's what's going on. Because Jesus says, you're going to be my witnesses, and we're, it, this is not about Israel, a national ethnicity with all your linguistic, cultural, dietary regulations. The people of God is everyone. Friends, just as a point of application, you just have to ask yourself, are you as a Christian placing barriers around you from the world around you rather than building bridges? It's very easy to do that, and, and, and that's, an, that's I, I could say this, that's an Old Testament influence, or a uh, Excuse me, that's an Old Testament impulse. Circle the wagons, keep ourselves separate because the pagans, the goys out there, we can't be like them. Tongues, Acts is saying no. Remove the barriers, go out to be with them. Friends, I get it. I I got three teenage kids, excuse me, two teenage kids, one young adult. And we're so worried about the world influencing them. But you know what? You should be worried about how they will influence the world. Right? When I was a young Christian, I got taught an expression. My friends and I came up with it, actually, from the Gospel of Matthew. We promised that we would be sheep in wolves' clothing. And people would have no idea what's coming to them. And one of the things I lament about being a pastor, and no offense at all, is that I'm always surrounded by Christians. A lot. My days in Hollywood, man, I was constantly with non-believers. And it was wonderful because they never experienced God's grace in the Roxy or the Troubadour. I remember young, speaking to a black Sabbath photographer. She was starting off in the industry just like I was. And we were doing a photo shoot together a couple of days. And one day she said, can I ask you a question? She's looking around like it was going to be really offensive. I said, sure, you can ask me a question. What's, what's going on? Are you a Christian? I said, yes. So, so the guy's in my band. She goes, I knew it. My point is, are you putting the barriers now, don't be unwise. I'm not saying, okay, I'm just going to get out there and drink tequila and be like that, because like, that's what they do. That's not what I'm getting at. I'm just saying, are you building barriers or are you building bridges? God says, I'm taking the barriers away. Build those bridges. Get after them. If you're non-Christian, I hope you can see, be encouraged that God has removed every barrier from between you and he so that you can be reconciled. The biggest barrier being your sin. He sent his son to pay the penalty of your sin. So the barrier that separates you can be removed. And we see that here. I know that's not directly the teaching of what tongues is, but that's an application. We've got to move on. Okay, so you be my witness in Jerusalem. Check, Acts chapter 2. Samaria, check, Acts chapter 8. To the other ends of the earth, check, Acts chapter 10 and 11, the Gentiles. But if you're smart and you're reading your Bible, you're like, yeah, Rick, but what about Acts chapter 19? That's a doozy. So I don't know what else to call them but the stragglers in Ephesus. This last passage, though, I think can be explained this way. I call this the cleanup of redemptive history. 
We have individuals who the text calls as disciples. I think they are actually believers. They were disciples of John, and John knew to point beyond himself to Jesus. We saw that in John 1 and 3. So we believe these are actually believers in the gospel, right? But they missed the Pentecost transition. What do I mean by that? If you know the story, in Passover, Jews flocked to Jerusalem. I believe these people from Ephesus were there. And at Passover, they would have heard the gospel, the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, and went, whoa, right? But Pentecost takes place, if you know kind of language, 50 days, that's what Pentecost means, 50 days after Passover. Most people can't vacation for 50 days. So they come to Passover because they have to do that. But then they go back to their homes, in this case Ephesus, and they miss the Pentecost experience. Here's my point. They understand the gospel, but they had no idea of this Holy Spirit, the new covenant sign being given out at Pentecost. In some ways, this picture of these believers is analogous to Apollos, which happens right before. Go to Acts chapter 18. I love how Luke continually does this. He kind of helps us interpret what he's writing so often right in the text. So look at Acts chapter 18. Oops, this is not Acts. Acts chapter 18, starting in verse 24. Now there was a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, who came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Okay, so Apollos is like an an, an allegory, not an allegory, but uh, he's just like these Ephesian believers. He understands the gospel, but he doesn't have the complete picture. He only knows about the baptism of John. And so what we have here is this kind of reality where these believers are in the exact same place as the Christians in Acts chapter 1. Full knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ, yet they hadn't understood the eschatological transition of the Spirit, the new covenant people of God. Put it another way, these disciples were living one step behind the state of play in the sweep of redemptive history. And so uh, Paul figures out what's going on, he prays for them, lays hands on them, and the Holy Spirit falls, and they speak in tongues. I need to wrap it up, get to our second point here. I just want to say this, in every instance that the gospel is going forward in the book of Acts, tongues is the corresponding sign of the universality of the gospel message, removing the barriers of language, just like Acts chapter 10 removes the barrier of dietary needs or dietary rules. In Acts, tongues is the inaugural sign of the new covenant that has come, and it's available to all. I hope that makes sense to you. What you're not seeing in the book of Acts is just random experiences of Christians having some kind of unique second filling of the Holy Spirit. No, 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 no. Luke is making an argument, weaving it through of God's redemptive plan in the book of Acts, and tongues is the inaugural sign of the Holy Spirit's work. I hope that makes sense. That's the, oh, I get it, that does make sense part. Now let's talk about the part where you're like, huh? And that is, as we talk about the personal and prayerful use of tongues in 1 Corinthians, I'm going to run a little bit late. I ask for your uh, allowance there. I don't have time to read the entire text, verses 14 to, uh, excuse me, chapter 14, 2 to 25. In your community groups, I encourage you to do that. I want you to read it, thinking about what we just talked about this morning. So let me make just six quick comments. First, 
Tongues, as we've said, it's already made the case, plays a specific function in the book of Acts directly related to God's redemptive historical plan. Very clear, we made the case. But it's also clear in 1 Corinthians that tongues still exists. You may or may not like that, but it's clear. You can't get away from it in 1 Corinthians. However, it's very different from Acts. Now, this should not surprise us since the Holy Spirit's presence is not simply the inauguration of the new covenant. Like, he's like, I'm the Holy Spirit bringing in the new covenant later. No, that's not what's going on. Jesus said very clearly in John 14 and 16, I'm giving you another comforter. My spirit's going to be, the spirit's going to be here. He's not just the inauguration. He's the experience of the new covenant. So it shouldn't surprise us that his ministries still continue on. Furthermore, there's nothing in the scripture that says the ministries of the spirit cease. You're just not going to find it. People make a case, but their cases are weak. Furthermore, and this was really important to me, Paul says himself in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 5 and 18, he says himself that he speaks in tongues more than all the Corinthians, and he wishes every one of them spoke in tongues. So at least in Paul's mind, this ministry of the Spirit was still happening. He functioned in it, and he wished everyone functioned in it. That being said, though, the differences should be noted. Because if you confuse Acts and 1 Corinthians, you're going to have bizarre theology. So we need to note the differences because the differences dictate how this ministry functions today. So let's talk about the differences between Acts and 1 Corinthians 14 when it comes to tongues. And this is, this, I put the scripture verses there so you can see it. I'm not making this up. In Acts, whenever tongues happens, all the believers speak in tongues. They all spoke in tongues in every instance. In 1 Corinthians, it's very clear that not all the believers speak in tongues. It's just a select group. In Acts, tongues were understood by all. There was no interpretation necessary. We see that in the text. In 1 Corinthians 14, nobody understands tongues at all, and so it requires interpretation. In Acts, strangers who experienced this, they were astounded positively. They said they are proclaiming the mighty works of God in my language. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, strangers are going to think you're out of your minds. So these are some significant differences. To say that what's happening in Acts and 1 Corinthians are the same is to completely misread the text. What we conclude from this is that in Acts, tongues only happened in groups because God was doing some massive, like an inaugural transition in redemptive history. It didn't reoccur, it was always public, and it served a form of attesting to the new covenant, the new age that God was bringing in. In 1 Corinthians 14, however, it's very clear when you read that passage that Paul's implication and understanding is that tongues is an individual private experience, used only privately. If ever in public, it required interpretation or was totally unintelligible, and it served as personal edification not necessarily attesting to inaugural work of covenant redemptive history taking place. Second, if tongues is not attesting to the Spirit's new covenant work in 1 Corinthians, we have to ask the question, then what is it? And I kind of alluded to it, but let me make it clear. In the verse, first sermon in the series, we made it clear that the Holy Spirit is not Christian-centered. He's Christ-centered. 
So all of his gifts are trying to highlight the ministry of Christ and the new covenant work that he's doing. And tongues basically seems to be, from 1 Corinthians 14, a means of, of kind of like an inspired personal prayer of edification. But it's qualified as giving thanks, it's always as giving thanks towards God. We see that in verse 3 and verse 16 and verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 14. It's always about giving thanks to God. The only other time we see a sense of tongues happening is in Romans chapter 8 when Paul says, in our weakness, the Spirit, the spirit utters on our behalf groans and things we cannot express. But even then, the context is, it's thanking God for his eschatological work of redeeming us. In other words, the end times work of changing us, bringing us his spirit. So it's always about what God is doing, giving him thanks. Third, let me give you some practical considerations here as we begin to wind down. Do not worry if you don't have it. If you don't speak in tongues, don't worry. You don't need it. As I said a little bit last week, as we look at the literature, beginning 100 AD and on, this is almost non-existent in the literature. We don't see the, the evidence of tongues on a regular basis. Occasionally, through Christian history, there have been moments in time where tongues were present. But no major movement that has reformed or refreshed the church was um, lacking any strength because the leaders didn't speak in tongues, right? It's just that, that's just not what happened. Now, I'm a fan of the Puritans. To me, they're like spiritual redwoods in the world of spiritual saplings. These guys were amazing. But there is no Puritan I'm aware of that talks about tongues or spoke in tongues. The preaching ministries of George Whitfield, John, and Charles Wesley, so they, they revolutionized Europe. Many historians say if it wasn't for the ministry of the Wesleys, Britain would have experienced a French Revolution, but they changed the nation. Um, Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, all of them never spoke in tongues, but their preaching ministries shaped nations. Fourth, where it does arise, as I said, it does arise in history. Jonathan Edwards says it happened in his Great American, uh, the Great American Awakening, revivals. Where it happens, the Corinthian problem emerges. Spiritual hubris, pride, excess, divisions, and it just becomes a big mess. So where it does happen, we have seen that. Let me say something positively, though. Fifth, something's going on in the last 116 years in the global church that we cannot just simply say, ah, these guys are nuts, I don't like what's happening there, so I'm going to say that the Bible doesn't teach it. It's something's happening, we can't deny it. Maybe God is working in some way. I wish I could tell you definitively, I can't, one way or the other. I can make as many good cases one way as I can the other. So that's where humility requires us to say, maybe God's doing something, we don't know. Sixth and finally, lastly, if you have it, use it. <laughs> but use it according to the way Scripture says, not the Trinity Broadcasting Network, okay? Not some crazy loon out there using it as a superpower. Go to the Word. Let the Word dictate how you use it. And the Word will tell you, build yourself up so you can build up the body of Christ like any other ministry the rest of us have. So let me ask this. What are we to make of these two radically different views and uses of tongues? What do we make of this? actually makes a lot of sense. On the one hand, there's this macro-level redemptive historical transition. On the other, there's a very personal, intimate edification. How do we reconcile those two? Two points to that. <laughs> Sorry, I, I lied. I do have more points. Two points and I'm done. Number one, we have to realize God is always working on these two planes. 
God is always working on these two planes. He is always redeeming and reclaiming the world and creation itself. Like the prime, or former prime minister of the Netherlands, Abraham Kuyper, said beautifully, there is not a square inch in the whole dominion of human existence, reality, or the universe over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Right? But God in Christ is also working on a very personal, intimate level. He is working with and in you. If you are one of his sons or daughters, we have to be able to balance both. If we focus on the macro, what God is doing in the world, we lose the personal, the intimate, the warm relationship. On the other hand, if we only focus on the personal, intimate world relation, or intimate relationship, we lose the fact that the gospel is the hope of humanity and history and creation itself. And we've made it all about me and you. As if we are the most important thing out there. Hint, we're not. It's the truth. God's glory is the most important thing. And I participate in that glory, as you do too. But I am not, and you are not that glory. Don't ever confuse the two. A true understanding of Christianity, friends, can balance both of these. Most worldviews can only balance one, if you think about it. Whether it's theological or just secular. Those who focus on the macro, liberal Christians can be this way. They, they focus on creation, the systems, institutions, global causes. But they're completely blind to the centrality of the heart. And how, it doesn't matter, all those great things, if your heart's not changed, it always goes sideways. Unfortunately, though, evangelicals like us can make the mistake in the other direction. We focus on the micro, the creature, the personal, the subjective, the relationship. And often we forget about God is working in the world illustration of that. I have a friend who's involved in politics. I love him. He's doing some good stuff. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm really glad. He's at local politics. I said, man, I'm really glad that because of your work, now we're like praying at city council events. That's good. I don't want to take away from that. But, but don't you think at the same time that, that maybe with you and your role and position, God would have you focusing on maybe like economic accessibility to all people, not just those who are politically or economically connected? And give everyone access to the benefits of this great country? Shouldn't maybe that's something you work on too? You see, that person, well-intended, is thinking that Christianity is just about the personal. But it's both. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'm saying a Christian worldview requires both of those. Yes, let's pray at these civic events. But yes, let's work on giving everyone access to these wonderful economic systems we have. Not just those who have money or political connections. Do them both. Is our faith balanced? Is your God just the almighty maker of nations, shaper of history, controller of destinies, or is he just your personal savior, divine comforter, faithful friend? You have to have a view of God that encompasses both because that's the gospel. Tongues reminds us that he's working on this plane continually, both planes continually. Second, finally, Tongues is a reminder that on the one hand, the workings of God are very rational. It makes sense. We saw that in his redemptive historical trajectory of the gospel going out. Makes sense. But on the other hand, we're also reminded, try as we might, there are some things about God that's mystery. And we can try and penetrate with our insight, and sometimes we're just not going to get anywhere. I think of Moses' words in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. It's true. 
But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all that is in the law. This is so important because there are some people say, God is so big and infinite, it's arrogant to think you can know anything. We don't know anything about God, and so we believe all kinds of crazy stuff. Foolish, because God has revealed himself to us. On the other hand, it's also the equal height of arrogance say, I figured out God everywhere. I've got all my theological ducks in all their rows. I know it all. That is hubris. You'll never understand God entirely. I love this verse because it balances both. It's that tension, right? As I always say, the gospel is this tension of staying in that middle. Friends, some things we get, some we cannot like the hypostatic union of Christ. How in the world is Jesus Christ fully divine, fully human? I don't know. Bible teaches it. God's sovereignty and human responsibility that God has foreordained all events and occurrences in this world, and yet I make actual real choices. How do I reconcile? I don't know. The Bible teaches it. The inferent, inferent, the inerrant, infallible word of God in the words of man. But yet there it is. Tongues, while not central to our God framework, I think falls in that category of faith-seeking understanding until God makes all things new and restores all things in the kingdom. If you need a God you fully understand, you won't have a God, the God of the Bible. You will have a God fashioned after yourself. And think about it. If, if you could figure out everything the way God does, then why, do you think you, why would you need God? You would be God in some sense. In uncertain times like our own, we see this everywhere. The world is looking and ever increasingly being let down by the experts because we want to know. We want control because we're afraid. This is just another reminder that the, the gospel and the Christian worldview doesn't give us hope and overcomes our fears because it promises that God gives us all the answers. No, it gives us peace. It overcomes our fears because God promises us himself. That's it. And that's enough. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you and we thank you. There are some things about you we will never know. And I think we'll spend eternity trying to fathom. But yet in your mercy, you have given us enough to know who you are. And the purpose is not just so that we can be theological, intellectual eggheads. But as Moses said, so that we can do all the words in the law. Thank you that you give us your spirit that changes our hearts. Lord, none of us here would be worthy, could be able to love you, love one another, do what we need to do if it wasn't for your spirit, not in the way that pleases you at least. And so we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we recognize there's mystery, but we don't need to have things figured out. We know you. You, you are good, and we trust that in Jesus' name. Amen.